Welcome to this episode of Being Human. I'm here with Ron Carucci. He is the author of To Be Honest, uh, Lead with the Power of Truth, Justice and Purpose. He's also the managing partner of Navalent. Ron, welcome. Richie, what a pleasure. Great to be with you. Yeah, and uh, you're joining us from Connecticut on a slightly yeah. uh, humid day, you were telling me. I am. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so you've... I wonder if we started on the movie, because one of the things I found interesting in your story is you started training uh, in the arts, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, you've come up and we'll get into your sort of corporate career. But like, um, I wonder if we should sort of start there and then and then what sort of instigated the switch into into what you're doing now? Yeah, well, so it's a, it's like many careers. They always look best in, with revisionist history. You know, retrospective always makes sense of a, of a bizarre career story. But I did I did begin my training in the arts. Learned that I bored easily, and so the idea of doing the same thing eight times a week for perpetuity was really insufferable to me. So I went on tour with a repertory company, um, and while once um, the company had a contract with the State Department of Military and in, in, um, in uh, Europe, and so we were at um, Dachau, the concentration camp, uh, doing a program that we, they didn't have the term diversity and inclusion back then, but this is before Germany's reunification. Um, but had they had that term, that's what this workshop would have been called. And in the processing of the material we were presenting, it was full of State Department and military and civilians and Germans and Americans. It was quite a diverse group trying to learn how to sort of work together and live together. And I think reunification was imminent. And so I think they were thinking about how are we going to get ready for that? And so uh, during the, the um, conversation, a young American soldier stood up. He probably wasn't much older than me. And he said, I'm really just so tired of being trained to hate. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking in the back of my mind, how did something we did up here make him think that? I was fascinated by it. So after the program was over, we processed that for you know, a little bit. I, I wanted to know more. And so I approached him and said, listen, we're in Munich. Want to go for a beer? That's what we do. It's Oktoberfest, right? So we went out and I, we stayed out for hours and I was just um, enthralled by his story and by what he learned and by what he was thinking about himself. And I think, I don't know that I knew it at the time, Richard, but I think that was the pivoting point in my career where I realized, you know, telling great stories is interesting, but engaging people in their stories and helping them tell a very different version of their own story, that was fascinating. And I would never be bored doing that. And so I think that's when I began to make the pivot toward um, what, what initially was clinical psychology and then be, I went to org psychology. Uh, and entered my field of doing organizational and leadership work. Mm. Right. Okay. So you, so you, 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 you hug up your, um, <laughs> your acting uh, career and, uh, and retrained, right? You went back to well, you. I retrained. I'm not sure that I hug up my acting career. I think I just took it with me to different form. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and then you got into organizational psychology and then and then you know it, it's been obviously a winding path into to this thing which is obviously now close to your heart this uh, this this point about honesty um so what you know why the attraction to that in particular well i so a couple of thoughts which you know i i think i've spent my whole career really making organizations more honest you know we we do pretty forensic diagnostics we bring in data and voices into the room and force leaders to um to think about themselves and their apologize for the dog. Uh, no, it's a good contribution. <laughs> Loving the dog. Um, uh, and so I feel like I've been holding up mirrors to leaders and about their own behavior my whole career. Um, when I 
I wasn't looking to write a book on honesty, um, but um, when we did the research, right? So we had a 15-year database and of more than 3,200 interviews that we had done. We um, we ran the analysis, and we used used a really sophisticated AI tool uh, in IBM Watson's suite. And so this time around, unlike our last 10-year study, which was uh, at that point 2,700 interviews, we went in with a hypothesis. This time, we decided to say, you know, if the, if the intelligence is that smart, let's ask it to tell us what we should be asking it. <laughs> and so, um, and so it, we fed it all the data, and it came back and with some very interesting drill sites around, you know, you could go digging here because it looks like there might be something here. One of them was on honesty. One of them was on some correl- correlatable factors that would tell you under what conditions people would tell the truth and what conditions they wouldn't be, which, of course, really led up my curiosity. And so we went back and did that analysis. And when, I, and when it came back so provable that there were these at least four, well, we, I chose these four to focus on, places where organizations were taking otherwise honest, good-hearted people and turning them into liars um, and that we could prove it. And even more importantly, we could prevent it. Uh, I was really excited. Um, and so I thought, well, I, could, I wasn't looking to write a, ni- a ninth book, but I thought I can dig deep and do, do another one for that cause. Because, you know, at the time, the, the political landscape, the, I mean, every, on every landscape you looked, there was some leader disappointing us. There was some organization letting us down. There was some headline that turned our stomach. And I thought, we have to do better. We just have to do better. And now mm. I, we can prove that we can. Right. Uh, so uh, for me, uh, it, I, I wanted to write the book of heroes. I wanted to write the book of the stories of leaders and organizations that we'd all love to emulate, that we'd all love to work for, that we'd all love to follow. I was tired. And I'm sure we are all tired of the Wells Fargo story and the Toronto story and the WorldCom story. And I, I think we need to be, I mean, get it. There, it happens. But the explanations for them were so unsatisfying. You know, it was a couple of bad apples or it was the culture. These are just so unsatisfying and frank, frankly unfounded explanations. I thought there's got to be more to a story than that. Um, and if there were, could we help otherwise good-hearted organizations prevent those same catastrophes? So that's why I wrote it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that immediately resonates. I just think of my own experience. I, I was working for Arthur Anderson, the accounting firm, when it, it blew up with everyone. So I, I went, like, I have a personal experience of that, right? Like, uh, you know, and it was blamed on, you know, the, the corrupt partners and, yeah, and sort of, uh, broad statements about the culture and so on. But yeah, you're right. Nobody really, you know, got to the bottom of how the hell this, you know, accounting firm managed to, to wind up so corrupt with one particular crime. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but that's interesting. I don't actually have, you know, that that's pretty unique, right? First of all, I, I hats off you for the diligence of re- like keeping all of those conversations that you'd had with those executives yeah. over the years. Being able to, and then having the thought to spit it into something like Watson and, and just being open to see what it you threw know, up. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I, we all, I think we all have Rembrandts in the attic, right? And I remember maybe seven years ago thinking when AI started to come into its own maturity and I thought we are sitting on decade, more than a decade of data of incredibly confessional, intrinsic, vulnerable, tell it all interview transcripts from all the diagnostic work we've done. And I thought, what, what kind of meta story would it tell? There's got to be one. Mm. Um, and then if I could statistically sort of quantify what it was saying, wouldn't that be cool? But I, at the time, before, before our last book, Rising Power, I didn't know if it could be done. 
I just thought it would be cool to try. And we found a partner, uh, a research firm that used use um, IBM Watson's tools. And when it came back with, you know, what it's, what, I mean, I, I didn't have a concept that it actually reads the data. Like it's not just, it's not a word search. It's, it's actually reading it and making intelligent use of it. So when it's reading 10 years of stories from 214 organizations, um, it's making meaning of it. And when it came back and, and the, uh, the analyst team that was working on it gave us said, well, here's what it's saying. I'm like, we're like, oh, that's so creepy. It's, it's really so cool, but it's really kind of creepy. <laughs> Uh, it was powerful. I, now, at the time, Richard, we had no idea what we had. We had absolutely no idea what we were sitting with. A year after the book that book came out, we published the research on, in our HBR, and it blew up. It was actually one of the top 10 articles of the year back in 2016, and we were flat-footed. We were like, what, what do we do? We, we didn't know. We, we... So this time around, I learned my lesson, and so I assumed that the same findings in this body research would be equally as resonant because they were so born from the roots of so many minds and hearts that we published it early. Um, okay. and, it, and indeed the factors definitely poked a lot of, poked a lot of, and provoked a lot of, uh, discomfort in the way we wanted them to. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and he said, well, one of the, th- one of the links I'm making in my mind is, um, Gary Hamill's book, humanocracy. I'm not sure yeah. if you're familiar with that. And yeah. he has this concept, which I love of the recovering bureaucrat, right? So he talks about, you know, these, these cultures, um, that have become dysfunctional in some way, right? It's, it's these bureaucracies have, have encultured people to play these games, um, that they, they feel so much shame about. They can never really like get out of them because they can't talk about them to break the spell. And so he talks about like a bit like if you're selling a 12 step, <laughs> step program, the first step is like take a, a fearless moral inventory, right? Of, of all of the ways you played games in the bureaucracy in your organization. And you talk about something similar in the book. And you, what, what's interesting to me is you make this point that we're instinctively honest, but yeah. we have to make an, an effort to lie, right? So, and, and that we, we can, any one of us can become encultured to lie, right? So the, it's, it seems to me like we, we find ourselves in these organization cultures that kind of turn us into liars. Yes. And it's sad because the conditions that cause it are sitting right in front of us. And there are conditions that we all just sort of turn a blind eye to like, oh, that's just, that's just an organizational nuisance. You know, when, we, when the leaders sit around and sort of BS each other about strategy and claim to be aligned, but they know they're not, or they don't agree on it, or they're not even sure they can execute it, they think, oh, that's just part of being political, or that's just part of being polite. Um, and then when you go to cascade that to the organization, you fragment it into a million pieces because everybody takes their own version of that yeah. identity and tries to embody it. Well, turns out by doing that, it's not just the normal byproduct of silos or the normal byproduct of working at scale. It's actually inserting risk because when you, when your actions and words don't match, when you are not who you say you are, you, you say we're this mission, we're this vision, we're these values, we live this purpose. And then you actually don't. You're now three times more likely to have people lie, cheat, and serve their own interests first. Um, by contrast, when your actions and words reasonably match, when people believe you are who you say you are, when people recite your mission and your, and your employees smile and not roll their eyes, um, now you're three times more likely to have people come and tell you the truth and behave fairly toward each other and serve your greater good or your purpose. So that's just one factor. So it's no longer okay to just turn an eye to, oh, that's just what it means to work in this company, or that's just who we are, that's, you know, or, to write, or to write off your own duplicity as an idiosyncrasy that people will forgive you mm. for. Mm. It, it, it's not. It, th- those are the petri dishes in which the ethical fun- misconduct and fungus are growing 
And that began many years before Arthur Anderson and Enron, right? These things just yeah. suddenly yeah. Yeah. People yeah. Enron didn't wake up one morning and say, hey, here's a good idea about how to sell different energy. You know, 5,000 people didn't wake up at Wells Fargo one morning and say, oh, I've got an idea on cross-selling. These things need time to fester. They need time to be, they need to, to use your word. They need to be enculturated. And over time, you know, I love Dan Ariely's line, you know, it's called what the, what the hell effect, right? Uh, uh, what, what the hell? I've already done, gone this far. I must also well get the most out of it that I can from cheating, you know? And, and yes, our brains are hardwired for honesty. We're, we're, our, our bodies and our minds and our souls are far more healthier when they are honest, um, unfortunately, our brains don't come equipped with a button like our cell phones do that says restore factory settings. Uh, and so once I'm into that culture and the line starts moving, I, I will eventually succumb or I'll go. Um, and, you know, we don't we have slippery slopes. We don't have slippery ascents. Um, yeah. And it's, it's a sad reality. And, and organizations by, the, by these factors, these everyday um, conditions, you know, and how we treat accountability or how we treat governance and transparency or how we work across borders, right? These conditions um, are just sort of relegated to typical organizational nuisances. Um, Yeah. It's just like, well, that's just working in a big old, it's the politics. It's kind of part of the job, right? Yeah. That's how we rationalize it, isn't it? it, Oh yeah. They're a pain in the butt over there in that department. Just work with them. Well, now what we know is those are spotlights that are, that are screaming. They should be on red alert saying, these are risks. These are risks. These are risks. You are inserting risks into your... But, but you know what, Richard? Scandal avoidance isn't the reason to want to get better at this. That's not the reason to do the work. Because you might avoid a scandal, but so what? But what we also learned, you know, the, under the most honest conditions, again, honesty being defined as truth, justice, and purpose, right? So... We learned that in our brains and we learned in the research and the data that it's no longer sufficient not to lie, to be called honest. You have to say the right thing, do the right thing, and say and do the right thing for the right reason. But that's how okay. high the bar is. That's how high the bar is because that's how low the experience has dropped, right? So our, our expectations go higher because our experience has gone lower. And so, hang on. I, just, I think I'm not quite fond of that. So say the right thing, do, this, do the right thing, and do the right thing for the right reason. Yeah, so truth, say the right thing. Yeah. Justice, do the right thing. And purpose, say and do the right thing for the right reason. But if you're, well, what's the distinction? But if you're doing the right thing, aren't you, by definition, doing it for the right reason? Like, so how many times you should have you heard people say, um, uh, let's cut costs so we can make the quarter? Right. You know, yeah. no, you could be, your costs may be bloated. That is the reason I cut them. Okay. Right? So there's plenty of people who would, who would say, oh, we did the right thing for the wrong reason. Mm. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah. And, you know, is that okay sometimes? Well, that's, that, that's between you and your conscience. Um, but what we know is that in every performance metric you could care about, you know, um, cost of goods sold, profit margins, market share, uh, share price growth, um, EPS, uh, employee satisfaction, customer satisfaction, brand loyalty, um, per- genuinely purpose-driven companies that live by a, a set of principles they can prove far outperform their peers and competitors by enormous factors. On every, we checked every single metric in the whole ESG world. 
right? Um, in the human performance world, in, in, in the neuroscience world, on any metric you would care about. Humans and organizations perform at their absolute best in the most honest environments. Well, well that's, that's 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 that really stood out. It was like, you, you've got this one stat, the B Corps in the UK, these are the nonprofit organizations, 20, 28 times the growth rate of the national growth. <laughs> that's extraordinary, 28 times, right? And it's, a, I mean, it's a, and there's a, some wonderful because Contexas is over there in Britain, one of, one of my great interviews with uh, John Rosling in London. So that's the reason to do this, right? To say, I, I'm, leaving, I'm leaving human souls on the table. I'm leaving money on the table, you know, by not wanting to absolutely wring out every ounce of honesty in your organization. And these four factors now allow you to sort of go, 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 lurk, go looking for what's lurking in the corners, go looking for what's lurking behind the corner that you may not see, that there are risks there that you've just turned a blind eye to or you've just assumed were just idiosyncratic annoyances. Now you have a spotlight. Now you have a particular lens to go looking at your organization through and saying, wow, that's not okay. Or right. the next time you're in a meeting, the next time you're in a meeting, uh, it's, a, it's a quarterly business review. And it's somebody's up in front of the room and they're sort of justifying what happened the last quarter and forecasting what's going to happen in the next quarter. And you know, everybody in the room is going, this is such crap, but they're smiling. <laughs> and the closest somebody might say, say something would be, would sound like, wow, Bill, interesting forecast, you know, but everybody knows what it's code for. Right. And that's, that's in America. Cool. Just think how more uh, dividend we are. In the, in the, in the and you, you guys need to be a little bit more pulling up your punches over there. Right. So that's not okay because everybody's going to go out in the hallway and have the real conversation, or they're going to go to the urinal and have it over the urinal. Um, and you have to now tell yourself, wait a minute. I just increased my odds of widespread dishonesty by 3.5 factor, by a factor of 3.5. Mm-hmm. How many meetings are people walking into where they don't believe the data that's being presented? They don't believe their voice of dissent is welcomed. They don't, you, they know you don't want them to, push back on them. They want you to tell you what you want to hear. And that's what they do. Um, that's not okay. It's no longer just polite or politically correct. You now have to look at that as, yep, I'm, I'm intelligent. I am intentionally allowing risk to fester because once you've told people around here, we say one thing and do another or around here, we don't really tell the truth in meetings. You've now said that's okay. Well, they're not going to contain those behaviors to just the, your failures. They're going to apply them to their own behavior. They say, well, that's what we do around here. I guess that's what we do around here. So that's how I'm going to operate. You've now unleashed it across your enterprise. Um, and we now know that those, those are predictors of honesty or dishonesty. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so we've talked about, so the definition of honesty is, is saying the right thing, doing the right thing, and then doing and doing and saying and doing the right thing for the right reason, right? Um, but then these four factors. So just again, just just to, to nail it in, what's what are the four? So there are, uh, the first one is be who you say you are. Right, actions and words match your your identity yeah. and promises have to match your behaviors. Uh, uh, justice and dignity and accountability. So the way we talk about contribution, the way we measure performance, um, has to be um, experienced by those as just and dignified. You you never see people walking out of their uh, into work and say. Wow, today's my performance review. I'm so excited. You know, it's, it, it's become the most demeaning and dreaded and dehumanizing experience. The, the, the process that should be the most dignifying and honored, right, 
Because in a world of work where my contribution is so much more fused to the contributor than ever before, my remit is no longer how many widgets did I make today. My remit is now my ideas, my analysis, my creativity, my thoughtfulness, my dissent, my out-of-the-box interpretation. So when you talk about my work, you are talking about me. You cannot say it's not personal anymore. Um, and so if I don't, if I experience that, that as unjust, if I experience that as, um, if that my chance of success, no matter who I am, is not the same as everybody else's, that, that I'm not in a privileged role, I don't represent a privileged identity, you know, that somehow the, the, the bar is stacked higher for me than others. Um, now you're four times more likely to have people behave unfairly and, and be dishonest versus if they are experienced that way, um, you're now four times more likely to have people behave fairly and tell the truth. And the last one was cross-functional partnerships, right? So the, the inevitable rivalries at the seams, sales and marketing, supply chain operations, pick, pick, your, pick your border war. We now know oh, go on. that, uh, <laughs> that if, um, if those seams are not stitched well, if those relationships remain in intractable conflict, not, not the healthy tensions that normally exist there, but unhealthy conflict, if that's unresolved, now you're six times more likely to have people because now when we fragment the organization, we fragment the truth. So now it's no longer about my, it's my truth versus your truth. It's dueling truths. And now the only goal for me is to win, right? At, at whatever cost. I don't really care if it's true or not. So, and the interesting thing about this statistical models, Richard, is that they're cumulative, right? So if you suck at all four of those things, you're now 16 times more likely to put yourself in one of those headlines on a newspaper in the London Times that you never wanted to be in. Um, right. or, you're, or get good at get reasonably good because we, what we, we, we tested the models to make sure they were not all or nothing. That if you increased, for example, transparency and decision-making by 20%, you get like, like a 12% kicker on honesty, right? So it's, there are continuums. So learn to be reasonably good at all four of those things and you have up to 16 times more of likelihood that when you need people to tell you the truth, you're going to hear the truth. When you need your people to treat each other fairly and well, they will. And when you need to rally them to serve the greater good of your organization, they will. Hmm. Uh, so, and these are all factors well within a leader's control. Yeah. Uh, you, they're not easy to fix if you become accustomed to behaving otherwise, but they're fixable. They're very, you know, they're very straightforward. And, and the book, I made sure that, there was, that nobody could read this book and have an excuse for not knowing what to do next, because every chapter I fill with, here's 40 ideas for how you can make this better. Just pick one and yeah. start. Um, and so my hope is that people will go, I could do that. I could try that tomorrow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, one of the examples I liked was, and um, I've not got the name of the, the, the woman you were working with, or I think is a pseudonym in any case, but um, where you're, do, you're, you're dealing with um, one divisional leader. She's got like four VPs. And you encourage her to, and they've got a problem with their, their staff satisfaction, right? Or engagement yeah. scores. And she, yeah. And, she, and, and you encourage her to go ask her VPs to find out what's going on and to sort of pick it up from there. I thought it was a good, yeah. good story. So uh, Angela, Angela is a wonderful leader, little, very hard driving, a very large apparel company. And she was a winner. She was the top, you know, she was a driven performer. Um, and the engagement data comes back and it's, it's got a blip on like a, a, a really uh, significant blip on employee development, my sense of career development, my whatever. And she was ready to sort of commission HR to go, go find out what's going on. I want studies and I want research. And I'm like, whoa, 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 stop that. Then they're just going to tell you what you want to hear. Why don't you ask, I said, why don't you ask your VP? She had five VPs 
to go out into their divisions with the data and make them make sense of it. Since it's really an indictment of it, as much an indictment of them as it is you, go find out. Because she really did care. She really was a very caring leader. And, and so I said, and don't prescribe a methodology. Don't tell them how to do it. Just tell them to do it. And let's see what they come back with. So two of the VPs come back <laughs> and it was in this debrief meeting and they basically announced, oh, we told everybody they were wrong. We went out, we presented all the reasons why we're actually really good at this stuff and now they get it. And I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. Two of the VPs went out and said, come back and said, we couldn't find anything. We asked people, you know, do you think we suck at this? And for some reason they said, no, we don't. So we really couldn't find it. So we just don't think it's, we think it's some blip. We don't think there's anything to it. And a fifth VP, her name is Helen. She decided that there was, a, she knew there was something to it. She went out and conducted her own focus for what she called listening circles. And she went around and she just said, look, our intent is to really make sure you feel valued and helped and supported in your careers and your development. And clearly the data is telling us you're not. So what's going on here? And she got an earful. Uh, and it wasn't so much that they weren't giving people opportunities to go to training or to advance their careers. They just weren't doing anything with it, right? So, you know, you'd be scheduled for a training program and you'd be called out of it to go do something else, right? So I, they, they were so, so performance-driven and so priority-driven and so metric-driven that any, any of my well-being, you know, barely made it to the top of any list. And there was never any time to do it. And you never asked me about it. So Helena reports this all out. And the other four PPs are ready to pounce on just sort of, oh, what kind of crap is this? I mean, you've got to be kidding me. And, and I'm looking at, and I know that's what Angela wants to do too. She wants to dismiss it. And I'm like, don't do this. Don't, you know. And she, we had a little break and she realized that she had been given an incredible gift by Helen, right? Of, of, of data she would never have heard. And, and that there was a cancer growing in her organization that she was unaware of. And so she went back and she, she chewed out the two VPs. Who did, she goes, I, I, she said, I was so excited when you came back with that data uh, until I realized what it must have been like to sit in the audience and be told I was wrong for thinking what I thought. Uh, mm. And the two of you were just lazy. And she thanked Helena for doing it. She said, you know, well, you know what the four of you are going to do? And I'm going to go with you. We're going to go do what Helena did. We're going to go really listen to people and we're going to get the information we need. And it was, it was life-changing for her. She went and exposed the board to the CEO who she reported to, what, what she'd done so she could learn. And it was a profound experience in her career. And there was some hard data. And she realized, you know what? You're doing what I trained you to do. She owned it. She said, I trained you to be focused on performance at such a cost that it came at the expense of other things that I care about. Um, that's not going to stay this way. Now, the change came far more difficult than she expected because she had built that culture. And this was the largest division, the highest performing, most profitable, highest revenue division of a very large corporation. And, you know, when you're on the hook for $7 billion, it's not easy to sort of say, I'm going to put that at risk for the sake of a culture that I don't value. Um, and some of those VPs did make the trip, uh, yeah. which, you know, that, that was to be expected. But it was a beautiful story of a leader, you know, taking responsibility in a, in a, for accountability, for, for humbly owning what she learned and treating her audition with dignity and making sure everybody had a chance to succeed. Um, not just the people who brought in the revenue and the money. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think what's key in that story is like, she, she touched, that's like, 
100% ownership, right? She fully owned her role in it. And then she, she shared that with the, with the staff. Uh, so funny. So I didn't tell her to go tell the, the boss. I mean, I, I was part of the coaching process to help her shape the journey. And she's very open and wanted to learn. And sometimes she would get defensive and bristle, but she was beautifully malleable. But when it came time to going uh, and presenting to the CEO and, her, and the board, I didn't suggest she does, did that. And I don't know that I would have. Um, but she wanted to do it. She wanted them to know because she knew it was happening other places. She knew that this incredible data set, and listen, how many companies collect piles of employee engagement data and do nothing with it? I just talked to a, a very large financial services company here in the United States. They collect it quarterly. You know, most companies I knew were on the every other year cycle because that's what it, about what it takes. I'm like, four times a year? Is anybody accountable to do anything with data? No. By the time you get to the fourth quarter, you haven't even gotten to the second quarter's data yet. What, what, what message could you possibly be sending your employees by asking them four times a year how things are going and what they think and having them see no evidence that you did anything with it? What could you possibly be saying to them? And I'm like, oh, wow, that's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it feels like it, it's, all, it's all from the head, though, isn't it? It's like, let's, let's get the data. You know, let's let's work out the remedies that we need to to implement in order to deal with this you know problem with the data. Let's roll it out and communicate the plan. But to, just to stop and go listen is so countercultural, isn't it? So many it's of these more, and more than that, it's ludicrous, right? It's I mean, what, how could you possibly? This is a big company, right? Thousands and thousands of employees. How could you possibly act on data four times a year? Mm. But what, what, and it's the honor system. Do you think the leaders that got bad data are out there trying to figure out what they did wrong when their metrics are, uh, are first of all, competing with other departments' metrics that they have to work with? And second of all, there's no sets of priorities, right? There's no corporate, there's no clear strategy from the top that says these are the priorities. So everybody's off to fend for themselves. What, what is it you think they're going to do with that data? Right? I mean, unless you've got an incredibly noble, conscientious, you know, deeply values-driven leader who's like, I'm going to get all over this data, which might be one in 50. What, yeah. what is it that's happening with the data? And so, you know, I mean, rule number one is never collect data or ask anybody for input you don't intend to use. Yeah. That you can't, and that you can't demonstrate how you used it. Mm. Yeah. And, but, but also think about how you collect the data, because obviously in your example, uh, you know, servers are one thing, but going and listening to people is a very different level of engagement yeah well i think that um you know it, it, it you had to do it right you now had you now had if you it, she chose to believe it you had disconfirming data about what you believed right yeah it's, and and when leaders ignore contradiction yeah the contradiction becomes intractable it now becomes immovable paradox right now you have fragmented the experiences of employees, right? You've told them they're experiencing one thing, but they know they're experiencing another. Now you have this sense of stress, this sense of shame, this sense of confusion that you're living in an alternative universe up there. And you're telling me that that's what the universe is. I'm seeing something different here, but you're, you seem to have no interest in my version of the world. Um, but what employees conclude is not that you're just out of touch. They conclude that you're duplicitous. They conclude that you know what's really happening here. You just don't want to talk about it. The actual truth, which is that most of them have no clue. 
Most leaders are really obtuse to what's happening on the ground below them. And they believe that because I'm a leader and I've declared this reality to be true, therefore it's true. Mm. And that my declaration in and of itself has made it so. I don't know why they would believe that, but most of them do. Most of them are not nefarious, you know, scoundrels trying to put a ruse on people. Some are, but very few are. Most of them are just believing that up from their ivory tower, what they want to be true, what they believe to be true, and what they intend to be true actually becomes true. Um, That's dishonesty, right? To not go test your assumptions, to not rigorously bring facts to the table that bear out your assumptions. That's the definition of deceit. Mm. Yeah. It's yeah. certainly the definition of self-deception. Right. And, and I'm just contrasting that with the story of uh, Satya Nadella in, from Microsoft and the way he asked the question or, or, or how to forming mission within yeah. Microsoft. Do you want to talk about that a bit? I, I quite yeah. like that. It's a wonderful story. I mean, Microsoft was one of my, and Kathleen Hogan was such a generous partner to, to learn from. In this, but he knew, he, I mean, and, and you can read about this in his book, um, Reclaiming the Soul of Microsoft. Um, he knew that he was inheriting a, a fairly broken sold company, right? That was competitive. And I had consulted there for many years. We actually had to walk away from him as a client because I just, we were being so ineffective to try and change culture there. Um, they were so competitive, so cutthroat, so individualistic. Um, brilliant. I mean, they hired the most brilliant people from the same six schools. And we just couldn't make headway. But he knew that to, to change that culture was going to have to dig, he was going to have to dig really, really deep. And so uh, he took his senior team off, you know, to an offsite, not around a conference room or a conference table, but around, they sit around couches and comfortable chairs. And he said, I want to flip the script. I want you to believe that Microsoft works for you. And I want to know how you intend to use Microsoft as a platform for how you will live out your purpose in the world. What, what is the impact you will bring to the world and how will we, we play a role in that? Because he knew that 140,000 employees were going to have to think the same way, that their own impact in the world to, in, to change lives technologically at scale uh, was going to have to be their individual passion coming to bear to leave their mark on the world. And so he, he knew he was going to have to start from the top. And they have become such an incredibly purpose-driven culture. And um, every week he does a, he, he did a thing called um, uh, research of the possible. Um, and he would have leaders from all over the company bring in these um, phenomenal examples of things people were doing, inventive, innovative, creative things. You know, one lab in London, in, in their Microsoft office in, in London, uh, created a way for a woman. She had Parkinson's and she was a school teacher and she couldn't write. So they created technology that allowed her to teach her students and write uh, without her tremors, right? You know, and these kinds of things um, were unimaginably happening all over the company. And, and so they wanted to make sure they were gathering those to demonstrate this is what we're here for. Um, and it's, it's gone. I mean, the, the speed with which he's done it is pretty remarkable for a company that size. But the culture they're becoming and continue to evolve. And, and Kathleen told me, she says, we're never going to be done. We, we have to earn this every day. And they mean it. I mean, there's a level of humility and intellectual curiosity there that's just extraordinary. Uh, and they will keep going and they will become such a wonderful example of what it means to, 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 to shape a culture at scale that we'd all be proud to work for. Yeah. And that earning it every day, I think is important because I mean, to me, there's a contradiction in my mind here because on the one hand, we're saying um, instinctively we're honest 
And yet it does feel like there's almost a sort of form of entropy in human systems that we sort of descend towards these more dysfunctional, whatever the term is, bureaucratic organizations, unless we work at like keeping it honest every day. That's that's what I think that was the biggest, probably one of the most surprising and wonderful findings in our research. Honesty is not a character. It's not something you sprinkle over the organization and hope it's honesty is a muscle. It is a capability that you have to work at all the time. You don't go to the gym and bench press 90 kilos on your first trip, right? Um, You have to work at that. And then if you don't bench press for five years, you're not going to bench press what you stopped at, right? We have to cultivate these muscles, these capabilities, this suite of of, um, competence uh, every day. It is, you know, it's, you know, think about the the world-class tennis players, world-class singers, you know, singers sing their scales every day. Tennis players hit hundred serves, you know, a day. They, they never stop. Um, and so honesty is something we should all aspire to be world-class at um, for so many good reasons. And if that's what you want, assuming that your intention, your honest intentions are the same as your honest capabilities is foolish, right? I intend to hit 120 mile an hour serve into the corner of a box is not what which, how, which, how um, Roger Federer thinks, yeah. right? He actually goes out and does it over and over and over again to make it true. Yeah. I, intend for my, I intend for my organization to behave ethically. It's interesting. Um, <laughs> it's not necessarily factual. Yeah, and if you just say that, I think some of the research says that if you just go out and you know declare a purpose and then do nothing else, it's actually worse than not declaring a purpose. That's right? what your, 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 your neighbors in London found out in, at Contexas, the London firm was you actually make things worse. If you don't activate purpose and you just declare it, you confuse your employees and you piss them off. Yeah, and you see that, I think, with values as well. I mean, there's one stat in the book I'd like that, you know, uh, in a Gallup poll, 20, 27% of, of staff believe their, their, uh, their values. Um, I mean, how and, painful and 20, is that? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's painful. And especially because you know they probably spent hundreds of thousands of dollars but to some marketing branding firm. To d- develop them, you know, yeah. Microsoft went out and listened to tens of thousands of employees for ten months before shaping their three values. Um, yeah. and, but that they unearthed those values at you know, Uber Jolie at Best Buy unearthed their values by listening to when we are, when are we at our and he, every employee in the store has got to ask when are we at our best as Best Buy. Yeah, tell and, us about that turnaround. That was another good story. No, you reminded me of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Uber's a wonderful man. He was a great, uh, a great interview, and a, he's a, become a good friend. Um, and you know, he sh- he by, by every account, he should have failed. Everybody told him this is a, the, the 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 company's in the brink of bankruptcy. All of the analysts were saying cut costs, cut costs, close doors, close doors. He did the opposite. You know, he cut metrics, he cut bureaucracy, he cut the crap. You know, he would hear from people in the stores, you know, I have 50 KPIs. He was like, what? that's crazy. But he listened to his people in the store and he said, just be human. The first thing I want you to be is be human. Don't treat people like, you know, you want to get in their wallets and sell them a TV. You know, treat them like they're your grandmother who has a problem. Be human, serve a purpose. And, and again, it was how will you serve your purpose through our purpose, which they, they eventually defined as enriching lives through, through technology. You know, and so they're, they're teen tech centers in underprivileged and underserved communities where teenagers have access to incredible technology to learn. Um, they do all kinds of things in their communities now. And, you know, for the most part, when you walk into a Best Buy, you're treated well. 
the geek squad, as they call them, you know, is there to help you there. You can get, actually get questions answered. Um, most people will walk into technology stores intimidated, right? That we're, it's yeah. uncomfortable. We don't even know what questions to ask. And they've made it accessible. They've made it, they, they made it so that we'll, you know, we'll help you. You'll leave with a solution. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's, um, it, it was a beautiful, beautiful story. Of course, the share price went from like 10 to just over 100 when he, when he left. Um, and, you know, his, in his new book, The Heart of Business, he talks about, you know, we need to treat profit as an outcome, not a goal. Yeah, well, that seems to be a running thread through all of these, um, I don't know, what we might call them, progressive organizations or human organizations. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this idea of honesty as a muscle, that intrigued me, right? Otherwise, you could say, yeah, I reckon I'm, I'm pretty honest. And then there's a stat in the book, like people on average lie twice a day. <laughs> I was like, I don't know, well, oh, do I lie once a day, twice a day? Yeah, they were sort of sat down and like journaled how many times did I lie today? But I'm sure if I really looked, there would have been like, you know, I'm sure it's true that I sometimes tell white lies. Um, I just wondered, like, maybe for you personally with your clients, like, or maybe you personally first, like, are there any like practices you've taken on to build um, your honesty muscle? So I, I, listen, we are, we are all dishonest in some way, especially if you define honesty as truth, justice, and purpose, right? So there's somebody I, I mistreat. There's somebody I disrespect. There's somebody I have a bias against. There's times I withhold information or I embellish information. The question isn't if you are dishonest, it's why you're dishonest. Right. And so what I, I encourage people to do, and I've done this myself, is I look back, just go back over the last week and think about the times you belied your values. You know, you, you distorted information, you withheld the truth, you, you, you know, you fibbed, um, you mistreated somebody, you know, a clerk at a store. You, you were disrespectful, you were unkind, you were short tempered, you behaved outside your values. Um, or when you were selfish, when you put your own interests before somebody else's in a really self-serving way. Um, and, and he tried to make it look humble. <laughs> um, just <laughs> go, back, go back and examine the last 15 or 20 times you did that. You did some, something of the sort. You will unquestionably see a pattern because our, our dishonesty is not random. Each of us chooses behaviors that we protect from, right? These are, most of us, are, our behaviors are born of self, self-protection, not, not self-interest. We're trying to hide. We're trying to you know, uh, cover a festering wound. But there's, there's a reason certain people, certain conditions, certain um, environments bring that out from us. Um, the question is, what's the narrative you learned that told you it was okay? What's the narrative that told you treating that person would make you feel better about yourself? Or saying that in that meeting would make you feel safer than not saying um, Trying to shape that perception of yourself in the eye of those people would make you feel more significant which of course, none of it's actually true because it doesn't work, right? So that's why we keep doing it. But, but there's some learned narrative with it somewhere in our story that taught us that by doing that, you'll meet this need. Um, what we have not yet been honest with ourselves about is that it's not working. That, that, yeah. need is not, that need is not actually being met. And that's why I keep repeating the behavior to keep trying to yeah. meet it. Rather than being honest about what the origin of that story is and changing that narrative. So my challenge to all leaders is um, don't just try and sort of morally police your words. That's useless and it won't work. It's like saying, saying to a chocoholic, don't go in the good avatar. You know, or if you go in the good avatar, don't buy anything. Um, so do the forensic work. Do the, do, you know, let's do the work to think about, okay, or just keep track throughout the day of when you're 
when you're prompted to behave in a way outside what you value, whether it's about truth or justice or purpose, and just keep note, just keep track of them, keep track of the stories and the, and the scenarios, you know, write the scenes out if you can in a couple of sentences. I was in this meeting with these people and I was in this store. I was with my family at dinner. I was with this friend and whatever. Um, uh, you'll, you'll find it very much in the secrets you keep, right? Mm-hmm. The, the sort of the things you hide from people. That's a really good clue about where you're trying to sort of, you know, and, and of course we all think our secrets are, are harmless crimes because nobody knows about them. Well, they're not harmless because they're harming yourself. Yeah. And so, and you're depriving the world of access to a part of you, right? So yeah. people you say you love, claim to love dearly don't love all of you because they don't know all of you exists. Yeah. And I'm just, if you're prepared to, I'm just interested. Is, are there any kind of breakthroughs you've had through that process, like narratives that you found yourself kind of oh my gosh, unpacking? Sure. You know, I think, I think there was a time in my life where I felt like I had a purchase, I had a purchase um, respect through help, right? That I had to, or, gen- I mean, the, I mean, if you read the last chapter in the book, generosity was one of the ones that I had to learn hard from, right? So I thought that, you know, being generous born of the way I was raised was a great way to earn people's love. Um, and I had to unlearn that and, and sort of, I mean, I didn't want to lose the value of being generous. That's a, that's really important to me, but I had to reframe when and how I applied it. Yeah. 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 There's a story of you taking 10 bucks, right. To give to your friend from your dad's wallet. Yep. And then it came back to bite me, you know, with my grandmother's plastics. Uh, I actually had somebody, it was so funny. I was at a, an event and this woman came up to me and she handed me 20 plant sticks. And I didn't know what they were. I'm like, what is, she goes, they're plant sticks. And I laughed so hard that she would, of all the things to remember in the book, she remembered the plastic plant sticks and she brought me a set of them. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, tell us the story so, to, you know, to fill people in. Oh, my gosh. So, so um, you know, as a, my, as a kid, I'm, you know, my mother worked in a bank. Back in the days when opening up um, a bank account got you a gift. So the more money you deposited, you got a toaster or a blender or an oven or a luggage or whatever. And mysteriously, my basement started to look like a warehouse for all the things the bank was getting. And so were the basements of all my mother's friends. And she assured me that as a manager in the bank, she was allowed, they were allowed to you know, sort of sample the gifts. All right. What was weird is we never used it for ourselves, right? We didn't use the stuff ourselves. Maybe on one occasion, took a blender. For the most part, though, when your birthday or your wedding or your bridal shower or your baby shower or your razor broke and you were over there, when that happened, my mother, you didn't just get what you needed. You got more. So, you know, this is odd. I was raised Roman Catholic at the time. And so, you know, charity was a big tenet of our faith. So anyway, so this was how we lived our life. The sort of a Robin Hood mentality made sense to me. Uh, and I was certain that if, if, you know, God would work out, the, God, God had bigger things to worry about than the technicalities of my, uh, my understanding of charity. So one day I come home from school and my mother and grandmother call me in the kitchen. My grandmother lived with us. And my mother, my grandmother had a plant cart in the living room where she, every year, Mother's Day, birthday, Easter, we could, we all vied to give her the biggest plant. And it looked like at one point we needed, we, we should have had deforestation in my living room. It was just like, it was like a rainforest. And, you know, back in the day, plants came with these little ornaments, like a little, little plastic stick that said, I have Mother's Day, or a little bear, or a little butterfly. And one day, so I come home from school, and my mother, um, grandmother called me into the kitchen, and they're stern. She goes, where are they? And I'm like, where's what? 
where are the plastics? I'm like, what are you talking about? We, we, we know you took them. I'm like, why would I take plastics? I, don't, I have no idea where they are. But they were certain I got it. And I, I, even at like 12 years old, I'm realizing, oh my God, this is coming back to bite me. My, my sense of Robin Hood generosity is now coming back to roost because I, I'm now being accused of doing something I didn't do. Well, this went on for several months. I got the call. You know, my grandmother used to have cold vegetables ready for me to come home from school. She asked me about my day. We'd watch game shows together. And I got I mean, this game, The Cold Shoulder. And my mother would say things like, if you just admit you took them, she'll forgive you. I'm like, but I didn't take them. About three months into this, um, I come home from school and my grandmother calls me in the kitchen. She hands me the phone. And it's my aunt. And my aunt says to me, I'm so sorry. I, she just told me what's going on here. I took them. They're bad for plants. They hurt the drainage. They hurt the roots. So when we, I was there for whatever Easter, I just took them and threw them in the garbage. I didn't say I didn't tell anybody. So I took them. And of course, I immediately started calculating. What can I get for this? How can I make my grandmother pay for, <laughs> for what she's done? I'm like, okay, wait. No, that's, no, no, don't do that. And plus, I missed her. I missed being close to her. You know, but I realized generosity without honesty isn't generous. Right. It was a, it was right. a, it was a thing, uh, sort of reverse reversal of fortune lesson for me to learn that generosity is great, but it has to be accompanied by honesty. It's not going to you're not you're not caring for anyone by being generous at the expense of integrity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's something you've um, learned to use so of therapy, use of coaching, use of, of my own journal work, you know, to, to now know that. You know, I still want to be generous. I still want to be abundantly and, and even sometimes extravagantly generous. It's, it is such a joy to, you know, flip somebody's life on its head by, you know, buying them plane tickets to see their mother when they need it, you know. But now what I do, Richard, is, and we do it, my, my wife and I give a lot of money away. It's just part of our own faith and our own lives. Um, I don't advertise it, but, but I'm much more scrutinizing my motives to say, what, why am I doing this? at this time for this person? And, and am I certain that it's not motivated by some other need? You know, a sense of obligation, a sense of guilt, a sense of purchasing admiration or purchasing respect. You know, am I certain that this is truly born from a need to be generous to somebody else and not a need to care for myself in some unhealthy way? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, that makes sense. And I can think, as I wrap my brain, I can think of moments where I've you know, actually done the wrong, yeah, done the right, the right thing for the wrong reason, right? I've been generous, but you know, my motives weren't 100 percent pure. But the other thing you're pointing to here, which I think is a common thread through, um, you know, this broader topic of organizational change or organizational transformation, is that the vast majority of the leaders who take on this culture change work or transformation work are doing the work on themselves, and I think it's inescapable. Like you've just talked about therapy, journaling coaching, uh, you know, can people cause shifts in organizations to become more honest without simultaneously working on their right bottom themselves? Um, it's going to be tough. I think it's more effective to do it together. Do it, I mean, do it as a team. You know, I mean, yeah. to, you know, at our website, to be honest.net, um, there's a, a, an assessment tool, how honest is my team? And it assesses you against the four dimensions. You can ask, have your whole team complete it, and then check and see you know, are we, are we being honest to each other? I think, you know, personal transformation happens at, the, at its richest place in community, right? You can't yeah. go away. You know, it's why you can't take alcoholics out of systems and go fix their alcoholism and put them back in a dysfunctional system. system doesn't work. 
And so I think the interplay between our individual transformations and our collective transformations have to work in a symbiotic way. Right. Um, and be mindful of that. Now, it can be a microcosm. It can be you and your team or department apart from the entire enterprise. So you can at least you can put a, a bubble or a, a, a protective coating around, you know, a subsystem if you need to. Um, but it's going to be very difficult to um, manage one without the other. Um, it's certainly going to be very difficult as a leader to prescribe change in your subsystem and not change yourself. Um, you're, you're not going to be, you know, uh, comfortable uh, or you're successful trying to change transparent governance and make decision-making more efficient if you're anxiously indecisive. Yeah. Right? You're, you're not going to be comfortable building a team if you're a highly individual competitive person. And so you have to really weigh the, and, and, and the problem is for many leaders, they've been so rewarded for certain types of behaviors that have gotten them where they are that they just assume that we continue to repeat that success or doubling down on that, on that skill set is what's going to keep them successful. And of course, often it's not, you know, yeah. what set you apart as a rugged individual on the way up, that same rugged individualism will not cripple you when you're guiding an enterprise or guiding a large yeah. part of it. Yeah, no, that, 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 that's a great point. Um, and the other point that you make in the book, which I like, is that it's just the sheer level of investment in making this shit change for a lot of organizations. And that immediately resonated for me in my own life. You know, when I've had to take on my personal dysfunctions, you know, I've paid dearly in therapy fees and time off work, you know, time off earning to, to do the personal work. And one story I liked was with, um, with, with Blake, I think, so, you know, and, and the, the cost of the transformation. And I just, I just wonder if you could share that story just in terms of what it can take sometimes. Well, I said, so thanks for bringing that one up. It's a fabulous story. Blake's a, he's such a good man. You know, he inherited a mess. But, but what it shows you is the cost of cosmetic change, right? So this is a company that had blanketed over a bunch of festering septic dysfunction with a bunch of new values. And was, they, they sort of, you know, white-coated, you know, coated the organization on the walls and the screensavers and with these sets of values that everything in their system belied. And so, you know, when Blake started to try and push on the enterprise, and it was a, it was a, a, a giant food company that lost its way. It had lost its sense of it. I mean, it wasn't competitive. It had not become, it had not stayed relevant in many categories that were evolving and changing or, you know, dying. And they were just grasping for straws. And so, you know, he realized that, you know, our, our value of, um, respect was being, you know, so, and what happened is the values get weaponized, right? So now if you wanted to, if you wanted to kill a rival from a job you wanted, you simply had to say, they're just not living the values or they're not, they're not living the principles, you know, so they became these weapons, um, it, you know, so you'd have people just re retargeting these values of teamwork with incredibly um, rivalrous behaviors. Values of respect being undermined by, you know, um, lying about your peers, you know, or if you're in marketing and, you, and you're running a campaign with the same agency as a colleague, but you wanted your priority first, you, you would just call the agency and say, mine takes priority over theirs and not tell them rather than going and saying, hey, can I have some flexibility here? And so he realized he, would have, he was going to have to gut the place. It took four years, hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, $340 million. But I like the fact you include that in the book because, it, you know, this is hard work, right? And it can be expensive. Well, I, and it didn't need to be, right? It had, to, had, to, had the previous regime done the work 
rather than just painting on the values or you know, brushing them on like they were, you know, a co- another, another layer of wallpaper over 20 layers of old wallpaper, um, it would have worked. They could have done it. But so much time had elapsed, so much time under these fictitious values had gone by. One, one of his, um, one of his uh, quips to me at the end of the whole process, he said, whoever said talk was cheap, never had to lead a company that overvalued it. Mm. <laughs> right. Um, it, because all the talk of these values at the expense of any material evidence of them uh, came at a huge cost. A lot yeah. of careers. Now the company turned around, it was then thriving. And, you know, he, he said, he said it on its way on a, on a, on a wonderfully sustainable path, but it did come at a, 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 a large cost, not just financially, but emotionally um, and uh, physically for the organization. And because it was all deferred maintenance, right? You know, you, you, yeah. you, if you cultural have cultural debt, as I, sometimes I hear people talk about, yeah. Cultural debt, it was technical debt. Um, and at some point, the invoice comes, and the invoice comes with compounded interest. Yeah. You wouldn't, you know, you can tell yourself that your 20 year roof that's now 40 years old and hasn't been replaced is just fine, except at some point when it starts to rot or it's been rotting the whole time and you don't see it. Now you have to replace the, half the house. Right, instead of just a layer of shingles. And it's, it's the same with our organizations. It's the same with our cultures. You know, you, can, you, you cannot not weed a garden and then wonder why the vegetables aren't growing. Yeah. Yeah, and I see it a lot in my work is that, that people will, what feel like substantial investments, right? Maybe that, you know, they're swapping out the leadership team. Maybe they do some, some reorgs. And, and they can seem like quite a lot of work to the senior executives who take on most of the burden of doing it but it's still a fraction of what actually needs to be done that Absolutely. needs to go root and branch all the way through the organization, listening at every level, you know, you know change at every level. Uh, a lot of often, not always, but a lot of personal work on behalf of the leaders, not away from the spreadsheets and the org design charts, right? And it, it's, a, it's a significant, as you say, emotional as well as financial investment. And I'm not sure that, you know, people are, are cognizant necessarily as they need to be of, of the level of investment required to make some of these changes. Because they want it easy, right? They want it quick yeah. and easy. Um, at our website, if people want to visit it, navon.com, we have an ebook on leading transformation. Um, and in it, we decode our, our playbook. And our code language is, is within, between, among. You have to do deep change within, deep change between leaders and their functions, and deep change systemically. Oh, I like you that, yeah. All three simultaneously for transformation to stick. Most people will do one or two of them. They'll do the training program for within. They'll do team building for um, between. They'll do a reorg or a new cultural values or a new strategy for a mom. The problem is if you don't do all three, one of them will come back to bite you. And so the, 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 the ebook is broken up. It's, a, you know, it's, a, it's an hour read for the ebook, but it's a, it breaks it down what, what each looks like. And then how, how, how do you do all three at the same time, which can seem daunting. But the reality is, you know, when you've gone in cultural transition, you just keep nipping and tucking it, right? A reorg here, a new technology there, a new email system here, a new training program here. You look like that person who's had way too much cosmetic surgery when you're done, right? And it looks like that. <laughs> and, 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 and then you wonder why nothing sticks, right? Because you didn't do it systemically. You just did it as a, as a, as a bunch of serial buckshots. Um, and now you're left with this unrecognizable blob that can't function. Mm. Yeah, 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 and uh, yeah. I think that's uh, that's so important, I, you know, and that makes sense within, between, among, yeah, and and starting with within. 
Well, that's the right order. <laughs> certainly, certainly you have to know that if, if you walk into a transformational change, assuming you're going to come away unscathed, um, you're going to hurt people. Yeah. Because and no one's going to go with you. Yeah, yeah, because you've got to have that vulnerability. I mean, that comes through again and again, right, in all of the stories, like the leader instigating this, um, you know, allows themselves to be vulnerable. And that's part of the honesty now. Well, I think today people are, I mean, if people think you're putting on a roof, if people think you have a veneer that's hiding part of you, they'll, they'll distrust you even more. I mean, leaders today, sadly, leaders start distrust. You start in the room and you have to earn your way into the black for trust. And if you don't understand the role of your own vulnerability in that earning of trust, um, you, you can't campaign your way to trust. You can't promise your way to trust. That's why we don't like politicians. Um, and so if, if I have to discover and point out your imperfections before you do, um, we have a bigger deficit. You need to tell me about where you're not perfect before I discover it so I know that you're aware of it. And then you need to show me how you're working on it. Because yeah. confession is not change. Telling people sometimes I'm a little impatient, or sometimes I'm, I'm you know I'm I'm a, I'm a little bit impulsive in my decisions. That's interesting. It's cute, um, but if you keep saying it as a way to replace change, at some point I'm just going to roll my eyes and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard this before. That's so true. And how often? So confession is not vulnerability. That's interesting. Yeah, confession is not vulnerability. It can be the start. It, it ought to be the start of it. <laughs> Um, but it can't be the finish of it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah just like writing down the values is not culture change. Um, it ought to be the beginning of culture change, um, or, but even better, writing down the values ought to be the conclusion of a culture change. Right. You, 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 you've done all the work to embody them, and you've earned your right to write them down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, wow. Um, I, yeah, we felt, felt like we've touched on some of the great stories in the book and been through a lot of, a lot of the factors that you mentioned. Is, is there anything we've kind of not touched on that you think is pertinent to this oh, story? Oh, my gosh. Richard, we've had, this is such a great conversation. I think um, I feel like I've read the whole book to you. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm grateful for all the wonderful prep you did. Thank you so much for being so thorough in your, in your reading of the book. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, that, that, that's good to hear. Um, yeah, I mean, it's certainly given me, you know, a lot to, a lot to think about. And I think the one takeaway for me and people will have different, obviously, if they read the book, but this, this concept of honesty is a muscle, right? It's, you know, this is something you can work on as an individual. You can bring this to your teams, your organizations. Um, it's something you can get better at. Um, yeah. And if people want, I mean, I've got a treasure trove of resources at tobehonest.net. People want to come, there's videos. We did a whole TV series where people want to meet all the heroes that you mentioned. Oh. I've interviewed them all. So there's a, we did a whole TV series called Moments of Truth, and I've recorded all the videos. And so you can meet Hubert Jolie, and you can meet um, you know, uh, Vincent Stanley and Rob Bala. Uh, and so there's 15 episodes there. Uh, so you get to see the voice, the first-hand voices in the book live in my conversations with them. And there's also a couple of other co-hosts I have, Khalil Smith and Jared Chappelle, do segments on voices, finding your voice, and a segment on everyday justice. So how do you create fairness in your own community? So they're all 30-minute episodes, but they're, they're packed with stuff. So all that's at tobehonest.net. Right. And then the, the book itself. Brilliant. Right. Well, this is just a treasure trove of, of resources for people who, who resonate with this. Awesome. And then, of course, you're, yeah, yeah anavalent for people who want to reach out and, you know, want to help with this stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. please do. And follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter too. Please stay in touch. Okay. Well, this has been fantastic. Thank you, Ron. 
Um, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. What a great conversation. For giving me giving up a sweaty morning in Connecticut. It's uh, <laughs> it's a pleasure. pleasure. Okay. It was an absolute pleasure. Good. Thank you very much. And we'll put uh, all the links uh, in the in the description to the show. Thank you. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.